All right. Hello, friends. I'm glad we were able to get together for another timely discussion. <laughs> it just has been uh, burrowing into my brain for over a month now. Oh, God. <sighs> Welcome to Principal Instigators, a science podcast for the haters. I'm Oliver, and today Sandra and Dan are here to help me work through my feelings on the age of the universe, crankery, and science communication. I hope you enjoy. Okay, slightly different format today. Instead of Mm -hmm. one of our hosts inflicting psychic damage on the rest of us we have me bringing my own psychic damage and sharing it with the class yeah (laughs) so let's talk about the age of the universe it is six thousand years old and we know that because when you read the bible even when it doesn't tell you exactly how long one of jesus's ancestors lives it gives you hints so even if we don't know that the universe is exactly 6,000 years old. We can tell that it's that, like, plus or minus 1,000 years. Yeah. Right. We know the generations, right? We've got all the begats, and so we, yes. and then we can line that up with, yeah, exactly. Well. It's going to be a short episode. Oh, my God. Yep, that's it. Yeah. No. Uh, so as, an, as a former astrophysicist, uh, no, <laughs> that's not correct. The universe is about 13.7 billion years old, which we know for a lot of reasons. You know, you can make some different assumptions and like Adam Reese is a Nobel laureate who has argued that actually the universe is around 12 billion years old, if you use a different model thing. But regardless, I mean, most people accept 13.7 billion years is the age of the universe. There's a lot of evidence for this all of the models until you start getting into some fairly radical stuff agree with this the observational error bars on that are really tight like a few tens to hundreds of millions of years that's uh, just some basic background that i just want to have established but on july 7th of this year 2023 so yesterday <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, it is August. We will We've definitely release this episode by November, though. So it's going to be pretty timely. It's been a month for everybody. It's fine. Uh, anyway, on July 27th, there was a paper published in Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society that introduces a few tweaks and alterations and basically a new cosmological model actually a couple of new cosmological models that say the universe could be 26.7 billion years old how common is it for someone to introduce a new cosmological model because to me that sounds like kind of a big thing that like a team of people would do and that like one guy wouldn't just introduce a bunch of new cosmological models in a single paper It depends on what you count as a paper, because my (laughs) inbox is full of (laughs) like works by one guy, different guys each time. But there are a lot of guys who will create a a cosmological model on their own. 
and send that out to other scientists. For this to happen in a really reputable journal like the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, it's extremely uncommon. We will get into this. I mean, one guy publishes a paper, right? A single author paper says, if you use these models, you get an age of the universe that's like twice the accepted age. Astronomers joke about factors of two not mattering for anything. But like I said before, there's a one Nobel laureate who with his team kind of argues for 12 billion years instead of 13 billion years. And that's a little eyebrow raising for a lot of people. But he's Adam Reese, he can do whatever he wants. But also he has other collaborators and he has like some strong motivations for this. This is just a guy publishing a paper that most people have not heard of before. And we'll get into this. It's a guy with a paste bin. Kind of. But the thing is, like, you can kind of, like, this doesn't have to be a big deal, except some science enthusiast, brackets, derogatory uh, outfits on the internet, right? Like, I fucking love science, except Mm -hmm. worse type places. Pick up this paper and they start running with it and saying, science just discovered the universe is twice as old as we thought it was. And this starts making its way around Twitter. And one person who sees this is Joe Rogan, who Mm -hmm. tweets about it, Mm -hmm. prompting response from Elon Musk, who doesn't actually respond to the age of the universe stuff, but says that generally he's perplexed and concerned about astronomy and that dark matter seems the most sketch to him. Oh, God. This starts going around. And for a while, if you Googled what is the age of the universe, Google responded 26.7 in their sort of like definitive first entry Mm -hmm. thing. And I hate everything about this. I am so, (laughs) it's been a month. It's mostly blown over, but I am still upset about it. And I think the reason that I'm bringing this, there's some interesting things about science communication and just the way that people interact with what their conception of science is and what more typical science is. But we should start with the paper itself. Reluctantly crouched at the starting line, engines pumping and thumping in time. The green light flashes, the flags go up, churning and burning, they yearn for the cup. They deftly maneuver and muscle for rank, fuel burning fast on an empty tank. Reckless and wild, they pour through the turns Their prowess is potent and secretly stern As they speed through the finish, the flags go down The fans get up and they get out of town The arena is empty, except for one man Still driving and striving as fast as he can The sun has gone down and the moon has come up And long ago somebody left with the cup But he's driving and striving and hugging the turns And thinking of someone for whom he still burns He's going the distance So this is a guy, Dr. Rajendra Gupta. He's adjunct professor who lectures at the University of Ottawa and I guess also maybe Carleton University. Not Carleton College, but Carleton University in Canada. So an adjunct professor. He's probably the person who taught all your classes in college. Most likely for most of our listeners. Yeah. It's a, somebody who doesn't have tenure, doesn't have a long-term contract, is hired on a yearly or sometimes semesterly basis to just teach, not to do research, just to teach classes. It's bad. <laughs> it's a way mm-hmm. for universities to get around having to actually hire people and give them job protection and 
tenure and to pay them way, way, way less than they would have to otherwise. It did start as a way for people to just sort of pick up some work on the side and like it's sort of an older, more established person taking some time to just teach a class on the side is not uncommon. I had a couple of professors like that in undergrad for some of my classes, but nowadays that's not what most adjuncts are. The only place I think that it's still like that consistently is in law school, where all of the adjunct professors I had were people who were actively practicing and doing stuff who were like, sure, I'll teach a class. It was always at like 6 p.m. You have the same thing in a lot of medical and medical adjacent programs. So a psychology department might have people who spend almost all of their time as practicing therapists who will be adjuncts and they can give guest lectures and maybe teach a one credit discussion course every once in a blue moon. And the reason I bring that up is because that seems to be sort of like what the deal is with Dr. Gupta, right? Like he got his PhD in like the 60s or 70s. He worked in industry for a while. You know, he published a ton of papers in like the Journal of Chemical Physics. He holds a bunch of patents in, I don't want to speculate about like whatever he was doing before this, but it seems like he had like a normal career. And then like, as he was wrapping things up, he figured he could teach a couple of courses at these universities for like intro physics. It was stuff like quadrupole crystal and electric field shielding and anti-shielding factors for some rare earth and heavy ions, right, is one of the papers that he published. Or like a two-part series of papers on the calculation of the multiplet structure of core vacancy levels for different materials. It sounds suspicious of like semiconductors. Yeah, it could be. It was like some materials, like molecular structure semiconductory stuff, right? Like this is very far from my experience as an astrophysicist, which should give you pause. <laughs> right? I looked him up on ORCID, which is the open researcher and contributor ID system. It's where a lot of people can link all of their publications and patent applications like as a scientist. You know, most of his career, he was in industry, like he had this company, it seems like it was doing finite element method simulations for magnetohydrodynamic stuff, which lots of respect for that. That is extremely difficult having done numerics and magnetohydrodynamics hard. But then sort of his productivity or his like research productivity trails off in like the 2000s and we don't see anything for a while until 2018. In 2018, he starts publishing again. And it's all cosmology. Hmm. Specifically, it's all a theoretical framework that he has come up with where physics constants evolve over time, but they change together in the precise way so that things like electron orbital energies and like all of these detectable things look the same to anybody who's looking backwards in time over the universe. Mm. I've never taken a physics class so pardon me if this is a stupid question, but when I hear the phrase constants changing over time, mm -hmm. that's a little bit confusing to me because I thought that constant is a word that you use for things that don't change. Yeah, that is an incredibly stupid question. I can't believe you would say <laughs> No, I, that's exactly correct, right? Like these things are constant. When you start getting to like really large scale things or very small scale things, and doing like really serious theory. There are people who have thought like, okay, these things that we think are constants, like the charge of the electron or the fine structure constant or the gravitational constant, maybe they can change over time and they're not actually constant. This is a legitimate question that theoretical physicists have had for a while. But every time somebody tries to create a theory where this happens, 
it completely it's like there's always some piece of observational evidence usually from astronomy because you know astronomers are the ones who are seeing super far back in time but there's always some piece of observational evidence that overrules this every piece of evidence we have says that these things that look like fundamental physical constants to us are in fact constant that's good it is good that's good it makes things very nice for us but also this is a problem that comes up a lot when you have somebody who doesn't have a background in a field and mm. they enter into that field because they think I'm a smart person. I can figure this out. They have ideas. Mm. Sometimes they're good ideas, but a lot of the times those good ideas were already thought of by other people and have been worked through and discovered to not really be applicable. You're previewing the science lawyer brain episode part one. <laughs> somebody who we've talked about not on the pod, but like, I think we all have at least seen some of her work is Angela Collier. She's a YouTuber mm-hmm. who I guess I, I shouldn't call her a YouTuber or a science communicator. She is a person who has a YouTube channel where she talks about science. <laughs> I don't want to demean her with those particular. I mean, she is a physicist who just so happens to have uploaded some videos onto YouTube. Her background is in astrophysics. It's actually not too dissimilar from my own, but she has a, a really good discussion of cranks and crankery, especially among physicists who move between fields of physics or try to move between fields of physics or try to take their massive physics brains who took two semesters of Jackson and then apply that to completely unrelated fields, right? And you have the the people who are going to have a hard time are the ones who go off on their own and just sit by themselves and try to come up with something and like solve a problem because they think they're smart. And the people who can do this successfully are the ones who go to a field that they're interested in or think they can contribute to and are humble and say like, hey, what's going on? Have discussions. And they say like, have you considered this thing? Or would this be an interesting approach for this problem? And then they can build collaboration and have collaborators and not make fools of themselves, basically. But so our hero here does not do that. He goes route one. All of these like first publications are single author works, and they're almost all in predatory journals. Mm. Until eventually he moves from like the journals that are sort of unambiguously predatory to the ones that are merely labeled controversial within the field. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff like you know MDPI and preprints.org, which also anybody who's in astronomy or astrophysics or many physics fields knows you don't put your preprints on preprints.org. You put them on archive. Yeah. And if they get rejected from archive, you complain about it and you post them to Vixra with all of the <laughs> flat earth conspiracy theory stuff. <laughs> so like clearly a stranger in a strange land here, but also he, his affiliation at this point is Macronics, not the, the company that he, I guess, founded and works for. This company has a lot of this stuff on their like recent work section of their website, which is confusing to me. I, I don't know. I don't know how a person does this, but like he kind of climbs the ladder by 2020. He's, he's got his adjunct position at Ottawa and he's now using that for his affiliation. And he gets a paper into monthly notices with that university of Ottawa affiliation. And he's like presenting at real conferences on this stuff. Again, monthly notices is a normal journal. Like I have papers in monthly notices. It's a like very reputable journal. It's where actually like monthly notices in the astrophysical journal are places where a lot of people who do this stuff will publish their work if it's not false enough to end up in nature. And it's just like amazing. 
And it keeps going. After literally 21 papers and preprints on this subject in the span of four years, he gets co-authors on some of it. There are other people who are taking this who are taking him seriously? Like, this is confusing to me. This happens a lot with physicists, right? You have people who pivot to unrelated fields. As they're getting older, they think, I'm a smart person. I can contribute. I can make a fundamental difference. I'm going to look at these fundamental questions in physics and cosmology, and I'm going to solve it. Usually nothing comes of it, right? The, the first half of this where you're publishing single author papers and predatory journals is typical. Like having it then go from there to being published in reputable journals and getting co-authors is not typical. And that's that's where I'm baffled. What happened here? I don't know. Like part of it I think is the affiliation change, but also there are people with normal affiliations who try to do this who don't make that leap, or at least not don't do it very well. Right. So like I don't I don't know. I should say, I mentioned before, some of this looking at fundamental constants changing over time is a thing that people have looked at a lot. It's mostly been completely disproven and everybody doesn't think about it anymore. But, you know, it's not necessarily crankery. The The theory that he puts out is somewhat coherent, but it's also kind of a mishmash of things. And it's not like it hangs together as a theory, but it's not useful in terms of observables or Mm. helping our actual understanding of the universe was what I got from reading through some of this stuff. He makes allusions to Einstein and Dirac and all of these like famous physicists. And that's, that's never going to help your case. That's never good. Yeah. It's rough. So that's, that's our background on our intrepid scientist here. I'm surprised because before we started recording today's episode, I only knew about this situation to the extent that I was looking for tweets from Joe Rogan and people like that about the age of the universe being not what we thought it was. And I was just making Oliver sad by sharing those links. I I didn't know anything about this guy other than that he was an adjunct professor at Ottawa. But I was surprised because with that background, I'm actually reminded of a team of two people in my own discipline who, to their undying credit, they haven't tried to do any math. But what they will do is they will they will collect a moderate amount of data pertaining to evolutionary biology, which is what I study. They will collect a moderate amount of data in a perfectly reasonable way. And then what they will do is they will graft their data set onto a much larger and mostly irrelevant data set that already exists, that there's plenty of people who are experts on it. And they will start drawing conclusions about that much larger data set mm. to which they contributed nothing. And what they do, which I think is especially exciting for me, since scientific publishing is being transformed right now over the internet and with preprints, what they do is they will essentially repeat this five times, but always pertaining to a very different group of organisms. And they will upload each of these manuscripts onto different preprint servers. Oh my God. <laughs> and they have managed to publish one of those manuscripts in a reputable journal, but there are others that have been out as preprints since 2019 or 2020 at the very least. They're just creating this parallel universe of knowledge. (laughs) We have like a group of people or like a person or two people or something who have their pet cosmology or their pet theory of the thing. And it's just unconnected from what everybody else in the field is doing and nobody pays attention to it. But it's just plodding along there doing its thing. 
I find that mostly entertaining. <laughs> or at least I should say I found that mostly entertaining until past this test. past month. Yeah. <laughs> Listener, be assured that Oliver has been spouting off about this every chance he gets. <laughs> so I'm just like it's a month later and he's still so mad. I'm, I'm not just mad. I am mad, but I'm not only mad. I'm also, as I said, baffled, perplexed, absolutely gobsmacked by this. And in general, upset. Yes, very. You can put it in the newspaper. I got mad. <laughs> Oh my god. So that's like sort of the background on Dr. Gupta. Normal thing that happens to physicists. They slash we will do this. We will come into a field that we know nothing about and start solving it for them. <laughs> Usually it makes people upset and angry. When it's physicists doing it to other physicists, we tend to just sort of roll our eyes and move on and don't care about it. But then this guy gets a paper, another paper in monthly notices, which again is a real journal, not a predatory journal, not any other weird thing. But he not only coins the impossible early galaxy problem, he then solves it with his cosmology with a twist by using a completely discredited theory from the 1920s. Nice. For some more science background, basically the James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST, I'm going to call it JWST from now on because I don't want to call it Webb. JWST has taken pictures of galaxies from about 13.4-ish billion years ago, redshift 11 or 12. And if you recall... I said that the, the currently accepted age of the universe is 13.8 billion years or 13.7 billion years. So these galaxies only had about 300, 400 million years to form. And they have a lot of structure potentially and development that they've gone through during that fairly short amount of cosmological time. And that's surprising. It's unexpected. Astrophysicists generally would not would expect it to take a little more time for those galaxies to build up, basically. Redshift 12 certainly is like very early in the universe to see a galaxy. What is Redshift 12? I mean, I obviously know what Redshift 12 is, but just in I case someone yes. listening doesn't. Astronomers use Redshift as a measure of distance and also look back time, like age in the universe, because as the universe expands, the wavelength of light lengthens just because space is physically expanding. And that expansion of the wavelength of the light causes it to get redder because longer wavelength light is redder than shorter wavelength. So you talk about the redshift of the light, that's a proxy for how long it's been traveling through the universe, so how much it's expanded. And yeah, redshift 11 and 12 is over 13 billion years ago, <laughs> very far in the past. <laughs> so the thing is, we never actually looked to see if galaxies could form there very much because nobody sort of expected it. It. And if you want to simulate those galaxies, you need to have a lot of resolution at a point in time when people didn't think there was anything interesting happening. Most of the time when you know we're simulating galaxies, we're looking at what we were interested in what they look like next. So we put all of the optimization into making sure we have all of the resolution to see what we want to see in the present day. 
But when people saw these galaxies in the JWST data, some of them went back and looked to see if they could form in the simulations that use our current cosmological models. And it turns out you can have that happen. It's not super common, but it will happen every once in a while. And of course, because the ones that form are going to be fairly big, they're going to be the ones that are also detectable by JWST. So it's not totally unexpected that these would exist at that time and that we would potentially even be able to see them. So the idea is that galaxies did not form immediately after the Big Bang. It took a while for that to happen. It takes a while. And we never had any direct evidence of exactly when that would have started or exactly how many galaxies there would have been relatively early on in our universe. And it's something that is of interest to a lot of people because that's how you start your simulations of how galaxies ended up being the way that they are today. Sort of. We had some idea of how long we think galaxy formation takes and what the assembly histories look like of these galaxies. But seeing them form to be as massive as they were seen in the JWST data as early as they were seen was surprising because there's been a race to see like what's the earliest confirmed galaxy that we can see. Can we see like the first galaxy or at least one of the first galaxies? Like that's been going on for all of our lives, certainly. For as long as people have accepted the Bing Bang theory, people have thought like, okay, if what we're seeing that's farther away is further back in time, can we see the limit of the earliest galaxies that were ever forming? Yeah, so people didn't really expect them to be quite so big, quite so early. And when you do a numerical simulation, usually you are simulating a typical volume of the universe. And so you may not get some of the sort of exceptionally large early galaxies, potentially. This is me sort of hazily recalling some of the stuff that I was doing a decade ago. (laughs) That's like the rough gist of it. Seeing these was a surprise. But then when people ran simulations to specifically check for galaxies of this rough size at this rough time in the universe's history, they found that you can reproduce them. There are also to be clear our error bars on how far back in time we're looking when we see these galaxies and certainly the masses of them the error bars are very large (laughs) this is hard right we're trying to find the mass of something that's potentially 13.4 billion years in the past and it's smaller than a gnat that's twice your arm's distance away on the sky is like where we're getting these data from okay it's oliver in post sandra's making me add some quick notes for the listener point number one is that, well, it's September now, and there have been even more of these early massive galaxies found in JWST data, so everything I just said about them being partially explicable with current cosmological models and simulations is up in the air again. You know, things might be okay, but there's certainly a bit more cosmological tension in the room than when we recorded one month ago, and certainly than as compared to when the paper was published two months ago. I don't think it changes any of the subsequent discussion, but just FYI, listeners. The second part is just a quick clarification on looking back into the past. Light travels at a constant speed, so when you know you look at something, you're seeing light that was emitted a certain point in time in the past, so you're seeing it as it was in the past, right? The sun's light takes eight minutes to get to us on Earth, so when you see the sunlight streaming down upon you, you're actually seeing the light that was emitted by the sun eight minutes ago. So if the sun disappeared, it would take us eight minutes to know about it. Same thing with galaxies, except 
much larger distances, so much larger timescales. If we look at something that's a megaparsec away, then we're seeing it as it was about three million years in the past. And so that's how we know that you know we're seeing them super far into the past. It's because we see them, we know how far away they are, again, based on that cosmological redshift, which we talked about earlier. And that's how we can tell how far in the past they were. And since we know, or we think we know the age of the universe, that gives us how long they had to form. All right, that's it. That's my science communication. Hope you enjoyed it. Back to the episode. But Dr. Gupta is not a member of, it does not have this background. He only sees people being surprised that there were galaxies this far away. And he thinks, aha, I can resolve this. <laughs> so he takes this question at, that people are like, I don't know, this is weird that these galaxies are there. Like maybe it's surprising these galaxies are there. And he says, therefore, they must be impossible under the current cosmology, which means it's time for my cosmology to shine. <laughs> <laughs> I have spent the past four years for this moment. God. And it turns out actually that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Even with his new cosmology where all of the, the cosmological constants and physical constants actually vary with time, but in a precise way so that we can't tell, that doesn't extend the age of the universe very much. Mm-hmm. So then he goes back to an alternative idea that was, I guess, originally proposed as like a way to get around the Big Bang back in the 1920s. It's called tired light. Light just loses energy on its own whenever it travels, which has been like super disproven and not like it was proposed as a hypothesis in the 1920s and within like 10 years was completely discarded. Doesn't it essentially deny the existence of the photon? No, it's not denying the existence of the photon. It's just that the photon itself radiates energy as it propagates through space. Oh. It loses energy that way. Yeah, which is just all kinds of wrong. I mean, it might not be, except turns out that, one, there's nobody has any physical mechanism for how it would work. And then also, two, there are some, again, observable consequences that we don't see. So again, it's another thing where if you were in the field, you would not think of or you would let go of. But if you don't know that and you want to make the universe older, you take a little bit of this tired light, you add it to your changing cosmological constants, you can double the age of the universe. So now if we see something that's 13.4 million years ago, it's not 300 million years into the universe, it's another 13 billion years into the age of the universe. So there's plenty of time for these quote unquote impossible early galaxies to form, which again, they're not impossible. <laughs> it is entirely possible for them to form right. in like the standard cosmological model. Right. And also it adds so many more problems that you then have to resolve. Like, why are these constants changing? Why are they all changing together like this? <laughs> What is the physical mechanism for light to lose energy like this? Why does it not exhibit any of the other behavior? It's like all you add all of this stuff. So again, it's still kind of a fringy idea that most serious people are not really paying attention to or not really thinking about very hard. But I guess some fringy pop science type places see this and then start publicizing it. And then we're off to the races because one of Joe Rogan's researchers sees it, which should probably give you some clue about the veracity or trustworthiness of the places that were first repeating it. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds suspiciously like a patent troll's expert report. I don't know what that means. Let me explain. Please. Isn't like where some patent troll got a hold of some late 
in life patent that's about to expire. Something that would have maybe been allegedly new 20 years ago, but has since been outmoded like crazy. And the report is positing this extremely old solution that's been discarded as the answer to modern problems when like no one would do it this way anymore because we've understood the shortcomings of something that's been worked on and moved over in the past 20 years. That sounds definitely... I fight these all the time. It's they're okay. very annoying, as it turns out. Well, but you still have to like spend some time addressing them and fighting them in your job. Whereas like most astronomers, cosmologists, people would just sort of see this in monthly notices and be like, uh, who is the editor that approved like who are the peer reviewers for this? <laughs> Again, I should say this is not of the level of crankery that I get in my inbox where it's like somebody who's not done any math doesn't understand GR and is trying to overturn quantum physics. This is a theory that holds together pretty well. It just doesn't actually solve any of the problems that exist and also raises tons of new questions for no good reason. Well, but also it is consequential and it does matter in that you've been yelling at us about it for weeks and we're not talking about it on a podcast because nobody else seems to be telling the story about how this guy's full of shit. The reason I've been yelling about this for weeks and the reason that we are now 40 minutes into recording this is not because an old physicist decided that he was a smart guy and would contribute to our understanding of the fundamental nature of the universe. It's because fucking Google (laughs) changed their search results. Joe Rogan tweets this to his tons of followers. It's something that probably popped up on his feed right next to how 5G is going to give every man, woman, and child breast cancer or something. Unless you take ivermectin. Yes, exactly. And then from there, Elon Musk responds to this. And then you have all of these blue check simps going, notice me, senpai, in the responses, who either trying to prove how smart they are and how he should hire them to work at Tesla or SpaceX or Twitter, or trying to get him to respond to their own actually super crank physics theories. And then you have actual science communicators both pejorative and not pejorative science communicators <laughs> responding, trying to clear the air. Somebody who I know was a friend from grad school exerted the effort to respond with a long thread of how dark matter is not sus and the universe is not 26 billion years old. And I don't know that it helped anything for her to do that, but I understand the compulsion to do it. I'm here yelling about it right now on this <laughs> podcast. It's, oh, oh my God, Jesus. I get that when you're doing that, you're not really doing it to respond to because you think Elon Musk is going to see it. You're doing it to show the people watching this is the actual truth. But it was so frustrating for me to see them being like, actually, Elon, if you look at the observations of how galaxies move within galaxy clusters or how stars orbit the centers of galaxies, this is where we think something like dark matter needs to exist. And he doesn't care. He's already forgotten and moved on. Joe Rogan isn't going to remember anything about this beyond the whole idea that scientists don't really know what they're doing. And it takes somebody who's like a visionary, independent thinker to come and revolutionize the field. It doesn't. (laughs) God. 
everything's just going to play into their preconceived notions anyway. Again, at this point, maybe I could have let it go. I probably wouldn't have, but maybe I couldn't have. <laughs> but then, but then Google, then you Google <laughs> how old's the universe, and the like, the thing that pops up with an answer that's not a link at the top of the page says twenty six billion years, and that's when I really lost my mind. Yes, how does this happen? Like. This is some Ed Zitron crustification and shitification level. Yep. I'm. What was this an automated thing where they were just scraping? Yeah. I don't know Twitter and the bottom of the barrel like science enthusiast websites about this. Yes, I can guarantee you that that's what happened. I mean, I feel like this is the interesting thing here is that Google immediately jumped on the like, oh yeah, new theory. You're like, no, that's not how science works. Yeah. But that's how Google works. Right, But even in the pop understanding of science, that's not how that worked. But also, like, who designed Google to go for these, like, fourth, fifth, sixth rate IFL science as Not even IFL science. IFL science wannabe just content mills. Why are they pulling from that for their actual search results? And, like, this is where I, I have nothing anymore. Now I need your help. Help me. <laughs> Please. I've talked a lot. My brain is worms with this. <laughs> the interesting question is how this happened, but I think the important question that needs to be answered is how much of a duty does Google owe to the public for things like this? Because, like, yeah. Google's a search company, or uh, I don't even know what they make all their money. They make their money off of something. Oh, no, they're an advertising company. That's right. We still had, Senator. One of the things that they do is they provide answers to people, and they've included the service by which you can just get direct answers to your questions without having to click through to stuff. But how much of a duty does Google owe to the public to get it right? And also to check that papers that say that the universe is actually just kidding, double the age we thought it was, actually got checked out the right way and weren't just some guy moonlighting. I think that Google kind of has to operate by consensus. For me, if I was working for Google as an engineer trying to design the system by which the search engine will answer a question that you ask it, I would be interested in two things. One, consensus. And two, timeliness. The scientific narrative that emerges from each discipline is evolving over time, not necessarily super quickly, but the emergent view regarding a certain question in many disciplines will be noticeably different today than it was 10 years ago when people were already using Google. So you want Google's answers to update themselves based on new information. And then there's a question of how do you determine which websites that you want to scrape in order to generate, you know, with big air quotes here, artificial intelligence, in order to generate the answers that you're going to give some 12-year-old who wants to know how old the universe is when they ask that question to Google. If your job is to figure out a way to answer scientific questions for Google, if you prioritize the peer-reviewed literature, well then, Crankery that gets published in a perfectly reputable journal is going to have a certain amount of weight. And obviously there's going to be a lag between when some kind of theory gets published in a peer-reviewed journal, reputable or not, and when the pushback occurs. So immediately in the aftermath of some crank theory being published in a scientific journal, whatever pushback there is, is going to happen on Twitter. And in a case like this, the accounts with more followers and probably just the majority of accounts in the first place are going to be like, 
Oh, wow. This is so cool. We never truly know anything. Science is always evolving. Science is self-correcting. The universe is actually twice as old as we thought it was. Whereas I'm guessing that, you know, Oliver's friends from grad school, no disrespect to them, probably don't have as many followers on Twitter as Elon Musk or Joe Rogan. Right. (laughs) And they may not represent the consensus that emerges from Twitter. That's the thing is, you know, when we rely on services like Google to tell us the truth, how can we expect Google to come up with some foolproof method for deciding what the truth is for us when Google is not a public utility and there's certainly an argument to be made that it should be regulated as if it were one. But Don't even blame sorry. Oh God, I'll be here all night. <laughs> but it's not, right? This is a private company. Every year there's more and more librarians quitting because they're being attacked physically by transphobes or libraries are being shut down or whatever it is. We have these private companies that are taking on more and more of the responsibilities that we would associate with public services and mm-hmm. with educational and scientific entities. <laughs> I just don't expect that Google has an employee whose job description says that you need to stay on top of what the latest estimates for the age of the universe are. (laughs) And you need to make sure (laughs) that the answer that people get when they type this question into Google is correct. Okay. First of all, thank you for answering my question and also making me feel depressed as (laughs) (laughs) That's what we're here for. Listeners, I was completely like thousand yard staring during that entire. I genuinely thought you'd frozen there for a minute. I was like, "Is he okay?" No, I was dying. I was not okay. <laughs> it's like that, this, I, I couldn't get my brain to go through all of that. Yeah, but that's true. That is God. Oh my God. Oh, that's. Oh, you're so right. Oh. I completely agree with Sandra that I think that that is generally how it works. And it's like, there isn't anybody there at Google who's double checking that new paper just to take the most drastic example possible. Andrew Wakefield's ridiculous paper was published in The Lancet, which is the UK's most prestigious medical journal. When the bullshit is so highly placed, it can be really hard to suss it out. But then the normative question here anyway is, if Google's not going to put somebody in place to check those answers... Why are they providing this service at all? Good fucking question. Good fucking question. No, but like, I mean, you're right. It's hard when you have, if you have a bombshell thing drop in the Lancet or in monthly notices or whatever, the way science works, the way science is supposed to work is you have careful work on a thing. And then if somebody comes to an astonishing result, like actually the universe is twice the age we thought it was. Just one peer-reviewed paper is not enough to establish that as truth. It takes more. It takes replication. It takes people then folding that further into the rest of their work. It's not just like you publish the paper and suddenly that's the new gospel. Like I mentioned Adam Reese earlier. He won the Nobel Prize for proving the accelerating expansion of the universe, which he shared with two other people, but that was not one paper that did that. That was multiple papers which were awarded the prize and which were then confirmed by subsequent work and fairly rapidly, but still comprehensively adopted into the field. I'm not a science communicator. You are now. No, I am not. If you want to learn about baryon acoustic (laughs) oscillation or whatever, go somewhere else. Go, I don't know, listen to- This is an extension of the do not contact me rule. Do not contact me. (laughs) Do not ask me to explain science to you. Actually, do. I love explaining science. I will not do it on a broad- I will do it one-on-one, not to a large number of people at once. (laughs) 
the idea of somebody just looking this up and seeing this, like a 12 year old, or just a kid who's enthusiastic about space and the universe and seeing like, oh, yesterday Google said it was 13.6, but now it's 26.6 or whatever. It just makes me, it makes my heart sink and my brain melt. And I hate it. <laughs> and the idea that this is happening because of some shitty automated web scraping bullshit. Look, I'm not a huge proponent of the ideal of science, right? I wouldn't be on this podcast if I were. I don't. The point, like, there are problems with science and the way science is done and who gets to do it and the way knowledge is constructed in our society. But that doesn't mean that everything is wrong and everything is bad. It is still a collective experience that things have to be somewhat agreed on and folded in. And you can't, you, you have to do the background reading. You can't just come in with no knowledge and upend the field without doing a lot of work. It's not like Einstein just like woke up and had the four ideas that made the papers that made his Annus Mirabilis. He was extremely well-versed in the subject matter and had spent a ton of time studying and communicating and understanding what people had done. A ton of special relativity stuff is not just Einstein's sui generis coming up with it. It's building off of, like, they're not the Einstein transforms, they're the Lorentz transforms, right? Other people had laid the groundwork for a lot of it. He didn't just come totally out of nowhere with it. You can't just not know what the hell you're doing or what the hell you're talking about and then have it be accepted. And the idea that the way our society works now is like, no, actually you can. It's fine. None of it matters anyway. LMA, LMAO. Good luck. I. Oh my god. Quick aside, listener, if you're wondering what the experience of recording this episode is like, it has been an hour of Sandra and I looking at each other and giggling, and then Oliver more and more directly at becoming Charlie from It's Always Sunny during the Pepe Silvia episode. Say, this is my Pepe Silvia. <laughs> interesting to me that I had such a res strong response to this and not to sort of vaccine denial or 
climate denial, in part because I haven't ever seen that get the imprimatur of what is a public utility in private hands on Google. But also maybe it's just because this is what I spend so much of my life working on. <laughs> like of the subjects I am educated on, it's the one I am best educated on. Not that I am the best educated person in cosmology. I know Twitter is a cesspool and like that's why I don't engage there Listeners, very much. If you want I to follow to... Oliver on Twitter, his handle is spelled Don't <laughs> handle is spelled do not. But seeing the sewage overflow like this, yeah. just like it escaped containment. Scientific publishing as it exists is fundamentally incompatible with the use of AI to discern some kind of consensus among the credentials. There is another thing that calls itself an AI. It is, I think it's called site, S-C-I-T-E, dot AI. It's this air quotes artificial intelligence service that measures the sorts of citations among peer-reviewed papers. And I think that the publisher Wiley has started implementing the use of this AI, Cite AI, so that for a lot of journals that are published by Wiley, if you go to the webpage corresponding to a particular scientific paper, there might be a sidebar where it'll have information from Cite AI, where it'll say, this is the number of citations to this paper that are supporting the conclusions of this paper. This is the number of citations that are neutral. And this is the number of citations that are contradicting this paper. The idea is that you might just be a Google Scholar searching through papers on a particular topic. And if one of them has been cited 100 times and one has only been cited five times, you might think that the one that has been cited 100 times is more important. <laughs> but this supposedly artificial intelligence flavored tool is supposed to help us better understand whether the citations to a paper are actually supporting it. And if that worked the way that it's intended, that would be a great thing because you could look at crank and borderline crank papers that are published in supposedly reputable journals and immediately tell that, in fact, the scientific consensus contradicts what this paper says. But a big problem is that employment in science is so precarious. Even if you have tenure, your employment is not precarious, but the employment of your students is very precarious. And what this means is that you have a tremendous disincentive when it comes to calling people out on their bullshit. Because even if there is extremely strong consensus in a particular discipline that a particular paper is really horrible, if you call that out, a bunch of your colleagues who agree with you on the merits might nevertheless decide that you're being harsh, you're being too rude, or that you should consider it beneath you to try to correct the record. The result of this is that papers that are borderline universally, if not universally, deemed by experts to be total horseshit, those papers are not going to have a ton of citations saying, oh, this is fucking horseshit. There's one guy in my own discipline. <laughs> There's this guy who has managed to publish, I don't even know how many papers per year. Over time, he has become more and more of an obvious crank, but he still publishes a fair amount. And the papers that he publishes are very obviously bullshit. It would take me only 30 seconds to debunk pretty much everything that he's published recently. And when I am reviewing manuscripts that are written by people who are earlier on in their careers, maybe not from the United States, where both that guy and I are from, who will cite his work, right, because there's so much of it, and he was respected for a while, so it seems like you should be citing his work. And when I will review manuscripts written by those individuals, sometimes they will cite the work of this guy, right, because as far as they can tell, he was respected for many years. 
he is a big name in the field. And so they think that his output can be a very good foundation for the questions that they want to pose. And then I'll have to say when I'm reviewing the manuscript, eh, I would cite something else because the work of this individual has been challenged quite a bit. The point being that I'm trying to help these individuals in their career. I'm trying to help these individuals save themselves the embarrassment of positively citing the work of this guy who's considered to be a crank. But I would never encourage them to shit on his work either in their own manuscripts, right? It's a fight that is absolutely not worth it for them. The result of this is that with very few exceptions, papers that are universally considered to be fundamentally flawed at best are usually not debunked in a way that AI, however defined, (laughs) can access. It is rare for there to be a very long tweet thread about why a particular paper is bad. And even if there is, that thread is probably not going to come from someone with a ton of followers like Joe Rogan or Elon Musk. And so these AI tools that exist to summarize the scientific consensus for us simply can't do that because a paper that generated a ton of excitement and was ultimately inconsequential is going to be commented upon in pretty much the same way as a paper that never should have seen the light of day. So when you think about how this technology is supposed to make it easier for anyone in the world to understand science, right? that really isn't what's happening because I think that a lot of very well-intentioned people who want to better themselves by learning more about the world, they're going to end up in this situation where they ask Google a very simple question and then they have to decide whether they want to A, believe it, B, not care very much at all, or C, dig through Twitter and decide which of the opinions that they see on Twitter are most credible. That is a whole lot of homework, and it's homework that most people who are interested in whatever scientific topic are fundamentally unprepared to do. By the time you have enough background knowledge to figure out who is credible and who is not amongst people with PhDs on Twitter who you've never heard of, at that point, I don't know that you necessarily need very much of their input anyway. This is my larger problem with most AI tools is that there's no substitute for just somebody giving a fuck. These tools can't replace somebody checking and caring about what the answer is and caring about what the right answer is. And when you're making these tools for a broad audience, it should be incumbent upon you to care more than if you were writing for people who would be able to check you if you're making shit up or if you get it wrong. And the fact that Google doesn't seem to care, I think is a larger problem. The 26 billion years thing is a great example because it's pretty inconsequential for most laymen. It's causing Oliver a lot of cute stress, as we can see on his face, as he slowly but surely becomes Charlie talking about Pepe Sylvia. But for most people, it's a blip, if that gets like a, oh, it turns out that thing I thought was right is wrong. Okay. But you can see where this becomes a much larger problem with much more direct things and things that are much more recent than looking at light that has shot out of some stars billions upon billions of years ago 26 billion years ago to be exact yeah exactly no no no. the lights from 13 billion years oh sorry thank you for correcting me nobody disputes that okay that part's not under question the question is how old the galaxies were when that light got shot out of them and i think is the more interesting question and also the thing that's harder to solve is like people keep pushing these tools they keep pushing 
these solutions that necessarily cut out having somebody who gives a shit on the inside. <laughs> that hits at it a lot for me. As insane as I am about this right now, like if I were at Google and we had done this, I would be apoplectic. To me, this is like, you're right. This isn't necessarily a significant thing, right? Like how old is the universe? Whether it's one number or another doesn't necessarily change how I go about my day-to-day life, but it does. And here's where my nascent lib tendencies come out. It undermines people's faith in just the concept of science to some extent, right? When you have a, a fundamental number, the age of the universe that all of the experts have been saying is this number for a couple decades now. And then out of nowhere, some guy comes up and he's like, actually, it's twice that. And suddenly, what is a reputable source in Google is giving that as the correct answer. It makes people think like, oh, all of this stuff that astronomers say, or like physicists say, it's not settled. It's not by itself the end of the world, but it's another thing on the pile of trends and pressures causing people to doubt science and scientific research, which in this case is maybe not the biggest deal. But when it comes to stuff like climate change or vaccines, becomes a much bigger problem. Yeah. And also just like as somebody who cares about what knowledge is and how it is communicated, that also bothers me tremendously. The Google tool should not be a system by which bullshit gets laundered into truth. Yeah. And the concerning thing is that the bullshit broke the Twitter containment so quickly. Yeah. So shortly after this paper got published, it got hoovered into the system And the system says this is now the right answer, even though it's not. Before we wrap, I want to address the fact that the age of the universe and the public understanding of the age of the universe do not have any bearing on the well-being of humanity or our planet. No one is going to die because they and their doctor think the universe is over 20 billion years old. So I'm guessing that some people might wonder why we're spending so much time talking about this. I'm totally on board with the vast majority of funding for science in this country and across the world going towards topics such as human health and climate change. At the same time, I am glad, and I think a whole lot of people are glad, that a fraction of the scientific workforce dedicates itself to more esoteric topics, like how old is the universe, or how did life on Earth evolve? We all benefit, however indirectly, from the fundamental knowledge that esoteric research provides to humanity, and with that in mind, I think that if Google gives someone an answer to a question pertaining to these topics, the answer should be the right one. Because at the same time that Google has started giving us these AI-generated answers, for whatever reason, their search function has made it increasingly difficult to find reputable sources of scientific knowledge. So I do think that scientists in esoteric fields are absolutely justified in being upset or frustrated when these sorts of things happen. 
And that's in addition to the fact that a wealthy country that exists during a time of global upheaval should be a place where you can get the correct answer if you ask the simplest possible question to a computer. Once again, there's just no substitute for someone just giving a fuck. I feel better, but also worse. (laughs) (laughs) So that's nice. Use your shark smile